Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Some administrative stuff to take care of and some announcements. Uh, as uh, most of you know, send out an email at Erica Uskali's mother, Mary Ruth Stuckey, passed the other day. Uh, just so you know, the visitation is Wednesday from 4 to 8, and the funeral is Thursday at 10, but that's at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Medora, Illinois. And if you want, uh, if you have uh, uh, the ability and desire to be there, see me, we'll get you the, the address for that. If you want to jot it down, it's 107 North Jefferson Street in Medora. Also, Betty Gilman went in for surgery uh, to remove a... Uh, stone, a gallstone, uh, and uh, wasn't there when they, when they went to do it, but they're keep, she's still, huh? A kidney stone, kidney stone, sorry. And uh, anyway, they're keeping her, she'll be hospitalized for another day or, or two maybe, just keep uh, her in your prayers and keep these scholars in your prayers. Uh, the other uh, major thing I need to talk about today is that we are starting small groups here in a few weeks. Are you excited? The sign-ups are out there uh, in the lobby. I've got some, uh, uh, some information, just some basic information about times, subjects, and hosts. You might have a sheet of paper that tells that. I'm still going to read them to you. But we had some, uh, a, a few of our small group leaders have actually recorded a video. They're, they're, they are trying to recruit you, trying to campaign, see who fills up the fastest. So we're going to watch those and hear from those small group leaders. Uh, and then I'll, then I'll share uh, information about the groups. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. All of the problems of COVID-19. Nobody knows but Jesus. Margaret, what in the world are you singing? Well, I'm just trying to make sense of everything that's happened this year. You know what? We need to be living by faith and not by fear. Why not join us for Prospering in Tough Times in the Super Church Room, Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock, starting January 6th. See you there. Hi, friends. Just to let you know that in January, Sandy and I are going to be hosting a small group at the church on Wednesdays from 1030 to noon, we're going to be starting with the Robert Morris uh, series on healing, and after that, it'll be discussion to follow and, and fellowship. So if you want to get be a part of that, get signed up. We look forward to seeing you. Hi, I'm Don, and this is Carolyn, and we're the Rashes. We're excited to announce that we're going to be hosting a care group for the church starting January 6th at 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. We sure hope that everybody comes. It'll be a great time of fellowship and getting into the word and prayer. I'm laughing at thinking everybody because that's a lot of people. <laughs> uh, we're going to be studying Chris Hodges' Fresh Air, and it's just a nice book that will help uh, help you live a more spirit-filled life and maybe take you from some of those I have to to I get to moments. And uh, there's also a participant's guide. Whoops, that's backwards. If you want to see it, uh, you can purchase that on your own. That won't be through the church. Uh, but the books you can are available through the church, uh, 
you can either purchase one or just borrow one, uh, depending on if you want to write in it or not. Thanks. We look forward to seeing you. We're excited. All right. Uh, and let me say that for, uh, for the ones, uh, there are some small groups that you'll be going through a book and that, that same thing is true for all of those. If there's a book involved, you don't have to buy it. Uh, we've bought those, but if you don't buy it, you have to turn it in at the end in decent shape. A lot of people would just prefer to own their own so they can mark it up, dog ear it, whatever. So we've made those available uh, at a very reasonable price. Uh, like you heard, Mike and Sandy Mack will be hosting at Super Church Room 10.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. Uh, going through the Robert Morris series, uh, some, some videos from Robert Morris on healing. Roger and Angela Bensel will host at their home on Tuesdays, 7 p.m., doing uh, a couple of apologetics series from uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. One of them is Jesus Among Other Gods. I don't know how many of you have heard anything or read that. That's an excellent, excellent series. And Everyday Answers. So those of you who are into apologetics, defending the faith, uh, you might want to consider joining that one Tuesday nights. Merlin Barb Metz, again, Wednesday, 7 p.m. in the Super Church room, watching uh, some videos, and I don't know if they had that book or if that was just a leader's book, about prospering in tough times. Uh, Jim and Ray Knight will host Wednesdays, 7 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall, and we'll be, uh, they'll be looking at some Robert Morris videos as well. One is a series called Frequency, which is about hearing from God. And another one is called Amazing Grace, and one called Free Indeed. Uh, Greta Henry will be hosting Wednesdays, also at 7 p.m., in the Hospitality Room on the Share Jesus Without Fear. That one does include a book. Uh, Matt Gordon will host Fridays at 6 p.m. in the Youth Room, doing the uh, uh, Brother Hagen books, Foundations for Faith, and then Steps to Answered Prayer. If you attend Matt's group, you must wear a mask. That is for Matt because he is not allowed to be around very many people, and they have to be masked for his job. So keep that in mind. Don and Carolyn Rash hosting at their homes on Wednesdays at 7. Again, Fresh Air, the Chris Hodges book. And Will and Nicole Chambers will host Wednesdays, 6 p.m. in the youth room, correct? Uh, and that is a, an informal group. Sorry, what? Sorry, Thursdays. For, I don't know why I had Wednesdays. First and third Thursdays, 6 p.m. in the youth room. So that one's every other week. It's an informal group. The, the subject matter will usually just be reviews of, of my sermons. It's also uh, child-friendly. Don't be uh, reluctant to bring your children particularly to that one. Uh, now let me point out a couple of things. These are on different nights and at, or at different times through the week on purpose because we know that not everybody can come on Wednesday nights. So if you can only make one of those and you're like, well, gosh, I want to go to this one, but I can't make that one time-wise, don't let that be the deciding factor. Go to the one that you can go to because really the primary purpose of these groups is fellowship, relationship building, prayer. The subject matter may grab you more than you, than you think it will, uh, but the emphasis for all of these groups, regardless of the subject matter, is, again, relations, re relationship, prayer, fellowship. 
Uh, it's just we want as many of you as possible to be a part of one of these groups. They will run for about five months. We'll take a break, and then we'll start a new cycle with different groups, different leaders. All right? So, uh, yeah, so the same thing. If it's groups, if, if you, a lot of them are meeting Wednesdays, and if you, and when, they, when they're full, they're full. When you sign up as a couple, sign up individually. I mean, if both of you, we, we want you to come. Husbands and wives should, should, should go to the same group, but sign up on a separate line because when they're full, they're full. We want to leave room. They can get bigger, but we want them to get bigger through invited guests. And we want them to, to start out as truly small groups. So if you don't get the one you wanted, sign up for a different one, okay? There'll be another round of them down the road. All right. Uh, I, think, I think that's it about that. If you've got questions, see me or, or one of the small group leaders. Those sign-ups are out there on the table. No fighting. All right. Uh, Another thing I needed to say to you is that I have done a horrible job of promoting Pastor Mike's messages on Wednesday nights. He said nothing to me about this. It just occurred to me the other night when I was washing dishes and listening to him. It's like, why? why I always, and I can't tell you how many times I have, uh, I've got it in my mind. When I get up there, I need to say something about anything, not just this. And I get up here and just dive right into the message and forget to say it. Anyway, I've meant to say something for a long time. Uh, number one, I appreciate it because it really does take a tremendous load off my plate. Not that I hate preaching. I love writing and I love preaching, but there's other things that are competing for my time. But the, the main thing is that he stays so fired up and ready to do these messages. And that really comes across in the messages themselves, as you know, if you've listened. Um, I, I tell you this, and I think I've told this story before. When I was at Canaan Land, my first job in occupational ministry, working for Brother Matt Gober down in Alabama, he made us, uh, all of us as staff had to read through a book called God's Armor Bearer. Remember that book by Terry Nance? He was, uh, Terry Nance was an associate pastor of Happy Caldwell in Arkansas. And it was really a masterpiece on the idea of serving God by serving a pastor. Uh, Tony Cook's In Search of Timothy is, is the best thing along that line in the years since then. But I remember a day years later when I was serving here as youth pastor, when uh, Pastor Mike and I traveled to Rushville, Illinois, to hear Terry Nance uh, do a seminar on this very topic. And we ended up actually sitting at the same table as him, at least for a while. We got to speak with him, and I shared with him talking about Matt Gober and some things. But the thing that I kept thinking about all through that seminar at that time was that Mike Mack could have written that book. Mike Mack could have led that seminar. I'm not even kidding. Uh, the whole time I'm listening to it, I'm like, he's describing Mike Mack. He's describing Mike Mack. He's describing Mike Mack. And I'm not just talking about how much I like the guy. I only kind of like Mike Mack. I just think, no, I love Mike. Who doesn't love Mike Mack? I'm just saying from the bottom of my heart that I don't believe that there's a better, more dedicated, more qualified, and more spiritually mature associate pastor in the world than Pastor Mike Mack. And uh, his message from last Wednesday was superb. If you are not in the habit of listening to those on Vimeo, uh, on uh, YouTube or uh, podcast, start doing that. Thank you, Mike, for everything you do. And thank you, Sandy, for because I know. <laughs> and good to see you again. Good to be out and about. Praise the Lord. All right. Uh, now, in the five minutes I have left this morning, it has been, uh, it's been a while. 
uh, I don't know uh, if you've been keeping track, but uh, last week, David Gullerford made his debut right here at Living Word Family Church and delivered a wonderful message about unity and the, the importance of praying in the Spirit. The week before that, um, we canceled services for kind of a COVID cool-down period uh, in, in view of the Thanksgiving holiday that was coming up. And the week before that, uh, I was home with COVID. I couldn't be here, so Matt Kreider... Uh, came through at the last minute and delivered an excellent message and uh, on what happens when life disappoints. And once again, I have to thank God for the deep bench at Living Word. Uh, thank, thank God. Thank you. And uh, so it's been a while. It's been three weeks. It's my first time in a month that I've been up here. So I'm tanned. I'm rested. I'm ready. Uh, and here we are. In a few weeks, we will be celebrating Christmas, the birth of Christ. And as I mentioned, I love this time of year. Christmas is my favorite holiday. Most of you know I love the snow. I love the cold. But what I, and I love the decorations. I love the lights. But what I really, really love about this time of year is that whether the people who are hanging the lights or the decorations or anything else, all of this is taking place because of Jesus. It is the birth of Christ that this holiday is built around. I will argue with you. And when, if you say, no, it's not, it's all, it's, uh, its roots are in the winter solstice. No, I'll, I'll show you why it's not. Uh, I may, maybe I'll share some of that next week or, uh, or so. But it's not really what I'm talking about today. I just love that we own this holiday. <laughs> and uh, it is. It's all about Jesus. It's about the fulfillment of prophecies the, uh, concerning his coming the first time. And I want to look at this, uh, this, one of my favorite subjects when it comes to the Advent season is anticipation. And I'm going to start in a place that might seem a little strange for a Christmas message, but if you've got your Bibles, and you should, open them to Luke chapter 24. This is right after the empty tomb was discovered. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, we read this, now behold, two of them the two of them, them being disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. They didn't recognize him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you've had with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now let's make sure we understand this. I know this is a scripture that we most commonly associate with Easter, with Resurrection Sunday, but bear with me here. The thing that I want to make sure we understand is that Cleopas, whoever it was talking with Jesus on this road, they weren't saying we were just going around, we were going on with our lives, and this guy Jesus appears in our lives out of nowhere and starts sharing these ideas with us and convinced us of something that we'd never thought of before. 
No, the coming and the appearance of Messiah didn't happen in a vacuum like this. It was prophesied. Daniel's prophecy from hundreds of years before actually put a timeline on it. And so you had a, a significant number of attentive, observant Jews who were actually actively on the lookout for the Messiah, for God's Messiah, the Savior. They knew, or thought they did, that God would send a Savior to them at the appointed time and that he would set things right. Now, of course, we know, most of us know, that their idea of setting things right is different from the idea that God had. But in the fullness of time, uh, in their mind, setting things right would mean throwing Rome off of their back and restoring Israel as the preeminent power among the kingdoms of the world. That was their idea of redemption. And this was an extremely attractive idea uh, to the ruling class of Jews and the common man in Judah. So Cleopas wasn't saying this amazing man came and put all these ideas into our heads about the redemption of Israel. He was simply acknowledging the idea and the expectations that were already there. And they had bet on Jesus being the one, to put it crudely, uh, uh, that, that would fulfill these prophecies. And he was crucified. So they really felt for a moment, for three horrible days, that they had uh, bet on the wrong guy, that they'd made a huge mistake. And they were lost. And Israel was lost. And of course, not long after this, uh, not long after this part of the conversation, Jesus opened their eyes and revealed himself to them and restores hope to his disciples. There is another guy I like to look at, and I hope you don't get tired of me bringing him up every year, but it's Nathaniel. If you'll uh, flip over to John chapter 1. And uh, this is... Uh, we read about John the Baptist and his ministry and how he had uh, told them that another greater than he was coming. And then uh, in verse 35 of John chapter 1, we read again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. I love this. There's some great examples of early evangelism here. One person meets Jesus, and the next thing they do in their life is go find somebody else to introduce to Jesus. Um, and now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. It's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. An Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the heaven you shall see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, the reason this grabs me so hard, there are a couple things. I think the first, first thing I notice when I read through that is always, you know, Jesus says something. It's like, all right, it's supernatural. How did Jesus know I was sitting under a fig tree? He said, before Philip even called you, I saw you. When you're under the fig tree. And that might be amazing, but I think my response would be, how'd you know that? What was Nathaniel's response? You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Doesn't that seem like a, a little bit of an extreme reaction just because Jesus happened to know where he was? I mean, even if it was supernatural that he knew, prophecy wasn't unheard of. It just seems like an extraordinary reaction. And I'll come back around to that in a second. But the other thing that this, is, this, that this grabs me is I have wondered many times what category I would have fallen into if I'd been alive in Jesus' time. If you read your Bibles, especially the Gospels, you know that the people who gave Jesus the worst time during his ministry were who? They were the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And of course, it's easy to blow them off as self-seeking uh, protecting their own position. But you understand, they looked forward to the coming of Messiah too because in their mind, Messiah was going to restore Israel as an earthly kingdom and they saw themselves as the rightful inheritors of, of certain positions once that kingdom came into being. They were the, the, front, the, the front guard, the, the advanced guard of true Judaism. And of course, we know they were very, very legalistic. Uh, they kept... Uh, in G during Jesus' ministry, they kept pressing him to openly declare, are you the Messiah or not? All the while, they were undermining his ministry, usually for things like what? Healing on the Sabbath. They're not saying, they weren't saying, stop faking these healings. They're saying, if you really are the Messiah, you wouldn't be doing these on the Sabbath of all days. You're just doing this to aggravate us. And he kind of was. But you also have to understand that already by this time, the, the Jewish ruling authorities had written and they crafted all sorts of interpretations and expansions of the law of Moses that dictated exactly how many steps or how far you could travel outside of your house, how much you could carry, what was going to be defined as work, because that's what it boiled down to. Down to. You can't work on the Sabbath. This is a tradition that is alive and well. Are you aware of this... Uh, this wire that they have going around Manhattan, and there's, there's one in Chicago, there's one in, in several cities in the United States. Uh, it's called the Eruv, or Eruv. And uh, it's because observant Jews aren't allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath outside of their homes. You can carry stuff around the house, but if you want to take a book over to a neighbor, or if you want to pick up some groceries, 
uh, or just carry groceries to, to somebody else, even an act of service. You can't do it. You can't carry anything outside your house. So they have strung 18 miles of uh, wire, almost like fishing line, around a huge chunk of the city, and they call that indoors. As long as you remain inside the wire, you're not traveling outside your home. It costs them $100,000 to maintain this wire a year. And one guy's job, uh, or, or certain rabbi's jobs are, uh, at certain locations around this wire, their whole job on Thursdays is to inspect that the wire isn't broken. Because it happens. Macy's parade knocked down a wire, and it, knew it was a catastrophe. Everybody kind of had to freeze until the wire was back up. But see, this is legalism, isn't it? It's kind of stretching things. It's like, well, we've got to do this, but we've got to find a way to make it legal. And Jesus' whole point was, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and Sabbath was created for man. There's nothing, there's nothing, it, 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 and even, you know, the conversations he had. Come on, if you had a mule that fell into a hole on the Sabbath, you're not going to leave him until the next day. You're going to pull him out. And here's this daughter of Abraham. She's been bound by this disease for all this time, and you're telling me I've got to wait one more day to heal her? No. So, with the Pharisees, I get them at least a little. I would say, look, Jesus, nobody's telling you not to heal, but there's seven days a week. Why do something that's going to throw up a barrier? It would be like, look, I know you got a great word, but do you have to wear your hair like that? You know, I want to believe, I don't want to be critical, but it seems like the Messiah would be, it would be so clear. You wouldn't give us any reason to doubt who you are. But the fact is, that most of them, not all of them, but most of them simply didn't want it to be Jesus for one reason or another. And we can talk about those reasons some other time. But here's another consideration. Uh, and before we talk about it, let's look at Acts chapter 5. Now this is right after some apostles had been arrested, thrown into prison, then freed by an angel. Only instead of running away, they went right back into the marketplace and started preaching, which is what got them arrested in the first place. And so they come before the council, and they explain to them, look, they're like, didn't we tell you not to do this anymore? And they said, we have to obey God, and he told us to do it. We have to obey God rather than man. And then we read in verse 33, Acts 5:33. When they heard this, they were furious, and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in that passage that applies to where we are today, right? We must obey God rather than man. Uh, but all I really want to look at 
today is the fact that in his short speech here, Gamaliel identifies two specific individuals who had at least had some success in convincing people that they were the Messiah. Or at least some major figure in God's plan of Israel's redemption. How many others were there? Probably several, but we know these two. And one of them had 400 disciples before they killed him. And I wonder, and this is, I got to be careful about this. I've preached this before, and I've got, I don't think I've gotten any kickback on it or pushback on it. But I've off, I, when I read the passage about Nathaniel, the question I have is what was he doing or thinking or praying when he was under that fig tree when Jesus said he saw him? Because I believe firmly that Nathaniel was one of many. I believe he was one of multitudes who knew the time was right. They knew Messiah was on the scene somewhere because of Daniel's prophecy. And he may very well, I think it's likely that he was aware of a guy like Thutis or a guy like Judas of Galilee and the following that they had. And how many people, if you had 400 people following Thutis before he died and then they were dispersed, how many outside of that 400 were watching Thutis to see, what's he going to do before I throw my lot in with him? Let's see how successful he is. And then they back off when Judas is killed. Same thing with Judas. And how many times does this happen before you find yourself, if you are an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, a guileless man, you want to do what's right. So you don't want to miss it if a guy shows up starts doing things, starts getting a following and claiming to be the Messiah, you don't want to miss that train. But you don't want to jump on one that's going the wrong direction. And so you pray. I pray if I'm Nathaniel. God, please don't let me be deceived by the wrong person, but don't let me miss the right person. If Messiah is here, if he's ready to appear, please let me be a follower of him. Please let me not reject him just because I'm afraid it's going to be another Thutis or Judas. And I think it's logical. I think it's even likely, but absolutely unprovable by Scripture, that this is what Nathaniel is meditating on, thinking about, praying about, when he's sitting under the fig tree, and this is what Jesus is referring to when he said, ah, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. How do you know me? I saw you before Philip came and got you when you were under the fig tree. Oh, it's like this, his appearance, his conversation with him at that moment was an answer to his prayer. It, was a, it certainly was a manifestation of Jesus' supernatural knowledge, but I think that's the, the best, most reasonable explanation for Nathaniel's reaction when Jesus said it. You are the Son of God. There are a couple of takeaways for us today 
where we are. And one of them is in, when, in the realm of judging prophecy. We were actually talking about this yesterday morning at men's prayer. Uh, and by the way, just want to encourage you, if you can make it out, please come, men, on Saturday mornings and anybody on Monday nights. Prayer, uh, it is always good to get together with brothers and sisters in prayer. Now, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's hard for me to drag myself out on a Monday night or any night. You know, if we've got a special service on Sunday, sometimes once I'm home, I love it when I'm here, but sometimes it's hard to get here. Uh, I feel like that on a Monday. Sometimes it's like, oh man, I'm cozy. There's, uh, I don't want to have to wolf my food down or I don't want to wait another hour. Uh, and sometimes it's harder to get out the door than others. But every time, by the time I'm here, I'm always glad I came. You'll feel the same way. Get here and you'll be glad you got here. And there is power in agreement. The more of us praying together, the more effective we are. And many, many things I believe that this church has been able to accomplish and been, uh, ways we've been able to bless people because of the prayer, the time in, in prayer that has, gone, that has taken place on Saturday mornings and Monday nights in particular. So join us if you can. Anyway, we were talking about prophecies. And there is a clear, clear New Testament instruction. Don't you dare. Don't despise prophesying. We don't want to be, uh, you know, this, and, and we've got people, there are, there are well-known ministers who despise prophecy along with all the other gifts of the Spirit. We are, not, we are not those guys, right? We embrace the gifts of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that everybody who's claiming prophetic utterance is speaking by the Spirit of God. We're also commanded to judge prophecy. Well, what do you judge them by? You judge them by what God has spoken to you. You judge them by the written word of God. You know, Peter wrote about, you know, we, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was writing about when we saw the transfiguration, when we saw angels ascending and descending on the Son of God at the Mount of, of Transfiguration. But then turns around and says, but now we have a more sure word of prophecy. And what he's talking about, what Peter was talking about, was Scripture. The written Word of God is even better than an eyewitness moment where you see Jesus revealed in his deity. That's a pretty powerful statement for how important Scripture is. And if we don't know our Bibles, then we are not going to very easily identify when somebody is saying something that's unscriptural. And if it has nothing, if it doesn't uh, deny Scripture, if it doesn't contradict Scripture, but if it doesn't immediately bear witness, doesn't mean you throw it away. Brother Hagen taught this for years, and we talked about it yesterday. Put it on the shelf. Wait and see. Um, that's something that, uh, that, that's, that's worth more exploration, more development, and we can certainly develop that in the future. Uh, meanwhile, let's pray, like Nathaniel likely was praying, that we will know the truth when we see it, we will know the truth when we hear it. That's a legitimate prayer, just to not be blinded, to not be fooled, to not be deceived. Another takeaway is the simple idea of anticipation. What's the next big thing on God's schedule? It's the return. The next big thing is the return of Jesus Christ. There are two sides to this. One is, one is, remember, this has been pointed out again and again, and it's very clear from Scripture, that the early disciples thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And they loved that idea. It had two effects. The fact that they believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime uh, produced two distinct effects. One of them was this, 
that it gave them a sense of urgency about fulfilling the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they did. There's strong evidence uh, that Thomas, for instance, made it all the way to India with the gospel. There is a church there that claims that, the, 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 that with a grave, that they, they claim Thomas is buried there. And he likely was. Others made it as far as Spain. Uh, and I don't know where, where all else they went, but they took the Great Commission seriously. And they, were, they didn't take their time about it because they thought Jesus is coming back any time. Uh, the other effect it had, sorry, the fact that they believed that his return was imminent was that it, it, was, it created in them a sense of longing. This wasn't something they dreaded. It was their most ardent hope. He's coming back anytime. And I think sometimes, you know, we call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. What is it for us? Is it great or is it terrible? It's great. It's supposed to be great. It's supposed, I think there's not enough Maranatha in our lives and in our prayers. And, and I guess that's kind of okay because, uh, but we, we, first of all, remember, his return is our blessed hope. We should long for that day. And at the same time, it's okay to be a little more like God in this respect. You know, so, uh, we're, we're told in Scripture that God isn't slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness. He's patient is what he is. Not willing that any should perish. In other words, every day he delays is the opportunity for many more thousands of people to be saved. There's a message, you can find it, I think, fairly easily. Uh, Marty Blackwelder, who for years played with... Uh, Rema singers and band and worked and traveled with Brother Hagen. Uh, travels himself now, and he was speaking at Keith Moore's church not long ago. And in this message, uh, does anybody know the message I'm talking about? Where where I can say the title? If you typed in Marty Blackwelder, uh, more, uh, Faith Life Church, you'd probably find it. Anyway, the. The part that, that blew me away was he had some great and a long list of statistics about the growth of the church worldwide. How many people uh, were Christians in such and such a country, such and such a continent 20 years ago versus now? And how many, and, and the most exciting thing was how many thousands, even hundreds of thousands, are coming to Christ every single day? talked about when we read the book of Acts and how, how many people were saved after uh, Peter's first sermon. Was it 3,000? And that's a big deal. He says, there are that many people coming to Christ every minute now. And so every minute that the return is delayed, three more thousand souls or five more thousand souls, however many it is, are, are saved and their eternal destiny in heaven is secure. So it, there really is a tension there. Sometimes, sometimes I have a very strong, uh, palpable desire to see Jesus come back today. And sometimes it's like, well, what am I doing if he's not? If he's not coming back, tell me. What if this goes another 10 years? What am I going to be doing? Am I going to try to, am I trying to feather my nest? Am I trying to make my life as easy as possible? Or am I doing what I can to get one more person to come with me? And there's one more aspect of this that really speaks to where we are, uh, for instance, in this uh, election mess or post-election mess, among other things. Depending on your point of view, depending on your view of the last days, where is America, for instance, during the tribulation? 
during these last days. We don't really see it. You, you can, there are some things that can, that can be inferred, but it is uh, certainly a common belief among people who study eschatology that America kind of has to shrink on the world stage for a lot of these prophecies to take place. Now, just, just to give you a very quick answer to that, uh, another answer to that might be so many of these prophecies, we see them as worldwide when really they, they are targeting Israel and the Middle East. Could be. But what if it means that America really does have to cease to be the world's great superpower in order for these things to happen? Then are we going to say Maranatha? Because the quicker Jesus comes, that means the quicker America has to fall or shrink. Do we want that to happen? We don't. But it does help us get our priorities right, doesn't it? If I can know that whatever is happening, we're a day closer, we're a year closer to the second coming, to the fulfillment of that great promise, I can be excited. Let me tell you something. That same sense of urgency needs to be here about the Great Commission, no matter what else is happening. And nothing can stop that. No election, no president, no law, no, uh, no Supreme Court decision can stop the growth of the church. It can't disable us. It can't disempower us. Right? The gospel will flourish in the world if we'll keep our eyes on the prize. I do lament the, the apparent lack of impact and influence the church has in the United States. But there are still people being saved every day in the United States. And meanwhile, hundreds of millions have been saved, for instance, in South America just over the last few decades. And the vast majority of those are charismatic, word of faith, full gospel believers. Same thing, of course, uh, happening in China, India, even in Iran and places like that. Seems like a long time that we've been waiting. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. A lot of stuff has happened over the centuries since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. World-shattering tragedies. People have had many opportunities to say, this must be it. These must indeed be the last days, because this is clearly the tribulation. And so far, all of those assertions have been uh, disproven, and some people might be weary. Obviously, not everybody's lived through every single one of those things. But it seems like a long time. He said he's coming back. Where is the hope of his promise? Where is the hope of his coming? Where, where is he? I just want to remind you that it seemed like a long time to the Israelites who were alive in Judah under the Roman occupation too. It had been centuries. They knew that God had promised deliverance, that God had promised redemption, that God had promised Messiah. Where was he? And then you had the true scholars among them who knew now really is the time, but it had seemed like a long time. All the promise, all the prophecy, but in the fullness of time, God did send his son. And in the fullness of time, he's coming back. It seems like a long time, but when the day gets here, it's going to get here. Another great thing about living in this time, and one I truly thank God for considering my 
the skeptical side of me is that when he comes back, it's not going to be one of those deals where we're going to have to be like Nathaniel saying, well, I hope I recognize him when he comes back. I don't want to reject the person who shows up claiming to be Jesus if it really is Jesus, but I don't want to fall for a fake Jesus. I love the quote from Mylon Lefebvre that he shared with us at Canaan Land years ago, and I've shared it with you before. Don't worry about that because no matter what kind of claim they're making, no matter what else they're doing, if it's not, if he's not coming back, splitting the sky on clouds of glory with all of his angels, it ain't Jesus. When he comes back, there's not going to be a doubt. We're part of that generation. Uh, those of us who are alive at that time will not have to worry about missing Jesus. We just want to make sure we're ready, and we want to make sure that as many people in our sphere of influence are ready as well. Stand up with me, please. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.